0: have received in your bulletin also uh, some notes to follow along if you care to do so. And there are also discussion questions for you and your family to do either deeper dive or personal, (coughs) excuse me, deeper devotions or a little deeper study or as part of your family by having discussions about uh, those as well. I'm going to warn you, so you might want to limber your fingers up a little bit. We're going to be looking at quite a few texts here today. So uh, we're going to move back and forth a little bit between the Old and the New Testament because we want to talk about this new covenant, a better covenant, part two. And the primary premise of our message today is that the new covenant is better because it has better promises. And we want to talk about those better promises here today in verses 10 through 13. What exactly is it that makes this new covenant better anyway? We said first we needed to define last week the words mediator and covenant. The word mediator means one who stands in the middle. Do you remember that? A mediator is one who stands in the middle between two sides. And that the word covenant is the Bible word used to describe the relationship between God and the people with whom he chooses to have a relationship with. Okay, That's what a covenant is. It's a It is a relationship between God and the people with whom he chooses to have a relationship with. What exactly is it that makes this new covenant better? We said in verse 6, for review at the top of your notes, that Jesus mediates a better covenant with better promises. Remember that from last week? Then we said also that the first Mosaic covenant, the law was made with the nation, not just an individual, right? The earlier covenants was a covenant with David, right, that affected the nation. Then there was, you know, remember there was a covenant with Abraham and that affected the nation of Israel. A covenant with Noah and God's people to follow, right? They were they were covenants with individuals that affected the whole nation. The Mosaic covenant is a covenant with the nation. And then you have a mediator of that covenant, in this case, Moses. Okay. But uh, the covenant that God made with Noah, Abraham, and David were covenants made to individuals, but they had national implications. The Mosaic Covenant, again, made with Israel. Secondly, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. The previous covenants were unconditional. What do I mean by that? That means the covenant that God had made with them uh, was not dependent on whether or not they did their part of the agreement right? God was the one who made the covenant, God's the one who determined the terms of it, and God was the one who was going to guarantee, in some cases even with an oath beyond that, that he would, that this covenant would come to fruition, it would come to pass. Uh, But here's the problem, Uh, we said uh, that means this, this covenant is conditional, it's dependent upon their actions to keep the covenant. If then, if you do this, God says, then I'll do this. If you obey my, cam- my commandments, then I'll bless you, and you may enter into the promised land, right? If then, if then, if then. You see a lot of that in the Mosaic covenant that wasn't out there before. Uh, but there was a problem with this covenant, so the Lord says, I'm going to establish a new covenant that's based on better promises. We will find out those better promises very shortly. But we know for sure there were problems with the Mosaic Covenant. How do we know that? Verse 7, remember, (coughs) there'd be no need for a new covenant if the Old Covenant was faultless. Remember that from last week. (laughs) The reason for replacing the Old Covenant was that there was a fault to be found in the Old Covenant. What was that? Well, he's quick to add that the problem was not with the law. Romans 7.12, remember, the law is perfect. But with the people who failed to keep it, look at verse uh, Hebrews 8.8, for finding fault with them, finding fault with them. So the old covenant, the law was not faultless in the sense that it failed to do what God intended it to do. It was not flawed in that sense, because God never intended the old covenant rituals to be what saved people. Those old covenant rituals were designed to point away from themselves to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, <clears throat> then in verses 8a and verse 9, we learn two additional things about this new covenant. The covenant is made on God's terms. You see that? God is the one. Remember I told you there are two different Greek words, right? Diake, sunethike. I'm sure you guys all remember that Greek from last week. Okay. Deatheke is a covenant or like a living will, right? Like a will. You determine the terms. You say who's going to get what. You're the one in charge of that covenant. That's the kind of covenant we have here. Sunetheke would be uh, like a marriage covenant. You're doing your part. You have your responsibilities. I have mine. We come in as equal parties into this relationship, both image bearers of God, and we build, We have distinct responsibilities, but we're equal in the eyes of God. This kind of covenant is one in which God is the one who defines the terms, okay? This is a diethike. And not only that, another uh, new Greek word we said is that it's not just a variation of the old covenant. It's a new covenant, a different kind. The word is kinos. There's two Greek words for new. Neos, which means new of the same type. So uh, I know for a while Ruby had the, what was that, that red Pontiac, right? He had a red Pontiac. And then when that one wore out, she bought another red Pontiac, right? It was like a red Pontiac, right? It was new in the sense that it was a newer version of the same thing. That's neos, okay, new. But the word here is kinos, which means new of a completely different kind. So here's where the original languages help us because they really define what's different about this covenant. Not only is it One where God has defined the terms. God's the one who laid out, if you do this, then I'll do that. If you do this, then I'll do that. God is the one who determines all of that. But it's different from the Mosaic Covenant. In other words, we're not just rehashing the Old Covenant. We're not just taking the Mosaic Law and putting a new coat of paint on it. This is a completely different kind of covenant. That's very important as we get into chapters 9 and 10 because we're going to look at the difference in the Temples the earthly temple and the heavenly temple, and the sacrifices are different as well, remember? So as we get into those, he's making his point here now. And then finally in verse 8b, the second part of verse 8, we learn that the new covenant that God made was with Israel. Okay, so those are already filled in for you. Just like every other covenant God made, does that mean the Gentiles are not partakers of any of the blessings from these covenants? No, when you believe in Jesus And all that Jesus Christ has done, you become a spiritual son of Abraham. You receive the spiritual blessings of that covenant. We are grafted in, right? We are grafted into that. We are adopted children. Does that mean that Israel loses its blessings then? Absolutely not. Romans 11, verses 26 and 27 tells us that all Israel will be saved. When will that happen? In the tribulation. So the writer says, Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant. All that Moses could not do because of human weaknesses, Jesus does. He brings God and men together perfectly, providing access where the old covenant could not. Remember, you only had access to God when? Once a year, one person, the great high priest, only on the day of atonement, right? But now we have access at any time through Christ. So we'll see that the new covenant is better simply because Jesus is better. Jesus is better; he brings he's a better high priest. He he mediates a better covenant with better promises. You notice the theme here: better, better, better. So with that as our background and context for our passage, let's new, now move from the first question of what exactly makes this new covenant better to the next question, which is what are these better. Promises. What are these better promises that make this covenant so much better? But before we get to that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again, for just the richness, the deep theological truths in this book. Lord, I thank you for the way that it challenges us to <clears throat> not just show up, Lord, but to actively participate in your word causes us to dig a little deeper, to think a little more thoroughly, to think theologically, and then, Lord, apply that to our lives in a way that brings you honor and glory. Father, give us open hearts and minds to your wonderful truth, Lord. Illuminate the text for us. Help us, Lord, to understand it, absorb it, meditate on it, apply it again so that you receive the glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at... uh, Chapter 8, verse 10 is where we're picking up now this morning. Verse 10. Uh, he says, you'll be able to find verse 10 because I've got writing all through my Bible. Okay, there we go. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So point number one, in the first part of verse 10, 10a, the new covenant is written on believers' minds and hearts. Minds and hearts, for you filling in your notes here this morning. Now, we're going to turn now, keep your, you might want to fold over the pages of Hebrews and go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 1 through 4. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 29. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 here this morning. Now, this is what God had told Israel through Moses about the old covenant just prior to his death. He says this, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, Besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all the servants in all his land. Verse 3. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Verse 4. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you what? A heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. We often wonder, how is it that they could see these manifestations of God? Right? This pillar of fire by night, this 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 pillar of cloud right by day that's guiding them and directing them in. God is wiping out these entire armies. God's the one fighting for them. And yet they keep rebelling. We're like How can that be? Because, I mean, our battle cry is, I wish the Lord would just write it on that wall over here. And if he just wrote it on that wall, I'd know exactly what God wants me to do. Well, here's a people where he did. He wrote it in all of nature. Here's what I'm doing. I'm going to send these plagues. Here's the plagues. Matter of fact, I'm not just going to send them on everybody. I'm going to send them on you, but not you. Right? He just demonstrated again and again. They saw that with their own eyes. But look at here. Moses warns them, yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know it, or eyes to see it, or ears to it. In other words, you're not really comprehending what all of this means. Why not? Because the Lord has not given you that understanding. Isn't that interesting? Now, flip over then. Uh, they had written the law. Where? Where was the law written and in the Old Testament? On tablets of stone, right? That's where it was. But they lacked the heart to obey. What was written on those stone tablets? Now flip over to Deuteronomy 30, just one chapter to your right, and look at verse 1 there. So it shall be, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, right? If, then, blessing, curse, if, then. Uh, And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that command you do today, you and your sons. Then the Lord God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcast are at the ends of the earth, from the Lord your God will gather you. From there, He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. You shall possess it, and He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Verse six. Moreover, your Lord, the Lord your God, will circumcise your heart. He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. Now, isn't that interesting? Moses speaks about a future event, right? chapter 29, God has not given you the heart to be able to obey these things. But now in chapter 30, he speaks about a future event that will take place where God will do something extraordinary in their hearts. Notice that? He's going to circumcise their hearts. Now, that's something extraordinary we find in the book of Jeremiah, so keep moving to your right there, past the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah, and get to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. Now here the Lord introduces, He's, he foreshadowed it with Moses, right? The Lord God said through Moses, right, I haven't given you this heart yet. Then he says later, I'm going to give you this heart. I'm going to circumcise your heart for me so that you'll be able to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in chapter 31, here's the new covenant. <clears throat> Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Uh, Very important. You may have noticed in our reading today, it didn't say house of Israel and house of Judah. House of Israel and house of Judah is the correct translation. So I'm sorry I missed that on our screen earlier. But house of Israel and house of Judah means what? All. All. That's all Israel. Right? Not just the northern part. Uh, Judah was the southern part. Israel is the northern part. This covenant is with whom? All Israel. North and south. Okay, here we go. Where did I leave off? Okay, verse uh, 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Here he makes a reference to like marriage, right? You left this covenant that I made with you. like Very similar to a covenant in marriage. You left that covenant. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them. Notice that? And where? On their heart, and I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's our (coughs) text that's quoted for us in Hebrews 10 through 13. He's He's quoting the new covenant. Now, If you move uh, over to the book of Ezekiel, so go over one more book to your right and look at Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 26. Notice here what Ezekiel talks about also. He says, moreover, verse 26 in chapter 36, I will give you what? A new heart and put a new spirit within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So we see this here in, in Ezekiel 36, which parallels the new covenant promises in Jeremiah. God references these specific promises again about dramatic changes that are going to happen in the minds and the hearts of his children. Now now on our way back to Hebrews stop off at the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> <laughs> Romans chapter 6 verse 17. Actually we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Romans 6:15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. In the Greek, that's emphatic. That's like a command. He's pounding his fist. Like, absolutely not. What are you thinking? Verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were, past tense, slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. The new covenant promises to do something radical in our hearts, to change our hearts, to make it possible for us to be obedient to Christ. That is a significant change from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, all those Mosaic laws, all those Ten Commandments were God saying, this is my standard of holiness. If you're going to come into my presence, this is what you need to be like. Could anybody do that? No. So in a sense, then, the law became like a schoolmaster saying, these are all the things you're supposed to do, even though I know you're not going to be able to do it. But because I know you're not going to be able to do it, I've already prophesied there's going to be a new covenant with better promises that will enable you to do this. Which covenant is that? That's the new covenant. The new covenant. And that promise is so much better. What an incredible promise this is from God. Under the old covenant, the law was written on stone tablets, but under the new covenant, God promises us that his law is written where? Not on stone tablets, but our Minds and our hearts. Under the old covenant, they worship God through all these external ceremonies and rituals. But under the new covenant, God promises us that our worship is internal. We worship now in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Israel had memorized God's word. Israel had pledged obedience. But they never had that internal power to be able to do it. All that changed with Christ. When God did something in our hearts, a heart that was renewed for God. In the new covenant, we now have the power to obey. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a new nature. And all of those promises of the new covenant, they are fulfilled in Christ, who's the mediator of this better covenant. What does that mean to us? Beloved, every true believer knows that when you, were, when you were regenerated, there was a change that occurred in you. So you had a new motivation, if you will. Things that were old were passing away and things that were new were becoming new to you. So, for example, you found that you wanted to do things that you formerly had no desire to do before. For example... I had this insatiable desire to read my Bible. I never had that before. Now I can't get enough of it. And I know many of you agree. I had this insatiable desire to be around fellow believers. We weren't saved very long before we went to an IFCA conference over here in Maryville. There were 600 people all singing, How Great Thou Art. The walls were shaking. And Cindy and I looked at each other and said, Why doesn't everybody want to be here? How great is this? How great is our God? We're surrounded by people who love the Lord, singing their hearts out. We never wanted to leave. I think we stayed till like 11 o'clock at night. We're just, oh, this is great. So keep singing praises. Keep keep teaching us. that. I never had that desire before I was saved, ever. That was new. There was a new transformed heart. I had this desire to sit under the Word as often as possible. When I wasn't sitting under the Word, I was listening to the sermons on the radio, and I was reading, and I was listening to podcasts. I just... Couldn't get enough, couldn't get enough, couldn't get enough. Couldn't. I never had that before. What was the difference? I now had a new heart for God. I had this desire to be close to God, to hear the things of God, to be taught under the word. There were changes in my lifestyle as well. and Things that had previously had not bothered me about my own sin now repulsed me. I couldn't believe that I would even think about continuing to do those things. Things that I once enjoyed without reservation began to be even disturbing, or I even even began to hate them. That's the real struggle that Paul was talking about in Romans 7, right? Verse 15, you remember what he says? He says, uh, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I like to do, I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells where? Within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. What is he saying? He's like, now I have this inner awareness And because I have a better understanding of God's word, I realize how desperately wretched I am apart from Christ, and how utterly, helplessly, haplessly I am dependent upon God. That's the practical application of the promise of the new covenant. We have now a new and inner understanding of both good and evil, the laws of God's godly behavior are now written not on some stone tablets. We don't get to escape them that easy, folks. They're written now on our hearts and in our minds. That's a much higher standard. So point number one, the new covenant is written on the believers' minds and hearts. The second one we see in Hebrews chapter 8, in the second part of verse 10, the new covenant brings a closer relationship with God. The new covenant brings a closer relationship with God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's God had actually said that in Exodus chapter six, verse seven. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will be their God means he gives himself to us and they shall be my people means he takes us to himself. That's what that means. God had promised that to Israel at the Exodus. One commentator explains it this way The God who saves people in Christ is the God of his redeemed in a new and definitive way. And when people have been saved at the awful cost of Calvary, they are the people of God in a way never, ever before. There's a difference between the God of the Old Covenant in Exodus 19 when he says, don't even step on this mountain, don't even let the goat step on this mountain when my presence is here, to the God of the New Covenant, who now interacts with us in a different type of relationship, who says, the veil is torn from top to bottom, and you have continual access to me because my son is anchored within the veil. And as long as you have faith in him, you have access to me any time that you want. What a difference between the old and the new. How much better is it that we don't have to wait for the high priest to step into the Holy of Holies one time a year to confess sins? You and I can now step into the Holy of Holies every time we pray through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What a better promise we have on this side of the cross than they ever had before. What does that mean to us? Well, in the Old Covenant, in Leviticus 16, which the only mediator of the Old Covenant was the high priest could enter the Holy Holies, right? But now we have God continuously through our mediator, Christ. What else does that mean? That means what the author of Hebrews told us in Hebrews 4.16, that we get to approach the throne of grace confidently, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We have access to God anytime we need Him. How often do we need Him? Every day. <laughs> We're pretty needy. How about James 4.8? We get to claim this promise too. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. That wasn't available under the Old Covenant, but now... We have this promise from God that as we seek to draw closer and closer to him, he draws closer and closer to us. Oh, that's, uh, what a wonderful promise that is. Beloved, we have this better promise in the new covenant that we have a closer relationship with God because it's through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only a better high priest, he mediates a better covenant with better promises. So point number one, the new covenant is written on believers' minds and hearts. Point number two, the new covenant brings a closer relationship with God. Point number three, the new covenant will bring greater knowledge of God. The new covenant will bring greater knowledge of God. A lot of folks would read this verse and say, See, I don't need anyone to teach me the Bible. I have the Holy Spirit. That's all I need. There were even some pastors for a while that thought, I don't need any further education, I don't need anything. I got the Holy Spirit, I should just get up here and just start preaching whatever I want. Some would even just kind of scroll through the Bible and then wherever their fingers stopped, that's what they would preach on. Well the Holy Spirit directed me to do that. It's a little scary. Ephesians 4.11 tells us that God gifts some of the church to be evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do what? To edify the body. The intent of this verse here is not that there will be no need for pastors and teachers, but rather that the knowledge of God will not be limited to a select few. Remember before, only the select few had access to God's word. All those in the new covenant will have their own intimate, personal knowledge of God. Isn't that amazing? You have your own personal relationship with God. In the Old Covenant, only the priests and the scribes and the rabbis had the deeper knowledge of God. They were the only ones that had the continual access and the deep resources available to them, as well as the teachers and the time to devote to that kind of deeper study that would lead to the knowledge of God. Everybody else was tending their farms and working the land. I mean, they didn't have time to do all that. Only the priests and the scribes and the rabbis and the Sanhedrin, they were the ones devoted to that. That's why they held them in such high esteem. They could spend every day, hour after hour, just digging into God's word. In the old covenant, that was for a select few. That wasn't for everybody. But now, under the new covenant, you also have a deeper knowledge of God. You can cultivate that relationship with God through the study of his word, through prayer, through meditation of scripture. Through the new covenant, the truths of God are available to all through the mediator of this new covenant, Christ. Not only that, God would ensure this by providing every believer with their own Teacher who would illuminate the text, who would enlighten your hearts, who would open your eyes, who would convict and direct and lead and guide and encourage you as you read God's word. And this teacher would never be far from you. As a matter of fact, he will be indwelling you. He will be called the parakletos, the one who comes alongside the Holy Spirit. So not only did God provide the access to this, continual access to him And the availability to have a personal relationship with God yourself. He also gave you the Holy Spirit so that as you read God's word, you can grow in greater knowledge of God yourself. It's amazing. Remember the old covenant of Sinai was a covenant that was with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel included many people who did not know God personally. They were just claiming their nationality and saying, "Well, I, you know, I'm Jewish, so I, you know, God has saved me. I'm one of God's chosen people." But keep your place in uh, Hebrews 8 but flip back to Romans once more time, one more time to Romans chapter 2. Cuz this is the point that Paul's point here in Romans chapter 2 beginning in verse 17 But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, Paul speaking to the Jews. Remember in Romans chapter 1, he blasts the Gentiles for not having any excuse for knowing about God, right? It's written on their hearts, right? You already know these things are self-evident, he says. Now, you know, the Jews were sitting up there kind of smugly. That's right, those Gentiles. That's why we call them dogs. There's no way, right? And then Paul moves from them over to the Jews and goes, hey, you don't have an excuse either. Let me tell you about this. So then picking up verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Ouch. Ouch. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your your circumcision has become an uncircumcision. In other words, if you think because of this external ritual that you are in with God no matter what, all you have is an external scarring on your body, it means absolutely nothing because you haven't circumcised your heart to God. He says there, verse 26, So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and the circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. By the Spirit, big capital S there, not the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So just because you're a Jewish outward, Does it not mean that you are Jewish inwardly? Those that are Jewish inwardly are those who are circumcised where? Of the heart. Isn't that what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 that we looked at earlier? That there would come a day when it wouldn't be external but internal and he would circumcise their heart. Isn't that what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, about removing a heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. You see, all these under the new covenant are brought into the new covenant through your faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone that's saved under the new covenant are those who are individually born into this family through faith or adapted in through faith. So everyone who is in the new covenant all have a heart of flesh all have the Holy Spirit, and all of you know God. Not so under the Old Covenant. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 17? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That you may know God. See, we, God's people, all know God personally, and we live in the very presence of heaven through the one who's anchored within the veil, seated in the true holy of holies. Yes, beloved, we have this better promise in the new covenant that we have this deeper, personal, greater knowledge of God through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, every true Christian also knows they have this inner sense of belonging to God in a new way, don't we? God is no longer this stern judge, but now a loving father. And believers are no longer outside the community of faith like aliens or exiles. We are now members of the family of God. And so we discover that whenever we meet other members of the family, that they too know the Father just as you know Him. It's wonderful. You know God in a way they could never dream of under the Old Covenant. This new intimacy with God and His children becomes the bedrock of emotional stability in our Christian experience, isn't it? So when I'm going through a trial, when I'm going through uh, angst, when I'm in worry, I know that my Heavenly Father hears me and I look back at all the times that God has been there for me and carried me through every one of those trials and experiences. And I know that in my heart to be true, without a doubt. I have this greater knowledge of God, and I have this closeness with God. I don't have to rely on the priest to go in once a year. I know that because I can go to my Father, my Heavenly Father, at any time. Turn to First John chapter 2 told you we we're going to look at a lot of passages here. First John chapter 2. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. This is what... Uh, notice how John develops this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers... Because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the world of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. John is saying, you know this to be true. You have this greater knowledge of God. So point number one, the new covenant is written on believers' minds and hearts. Point number two, the new covenant brings a closer relationship with God. Point number three, the new covenant brings greater knowledge of God. Point number four, the new covenant brings complete forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 12 again Hebrews chapter 8. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God, through his mercy, remembers your sins no more. It was sin that always separated man from God, and thus God could not have men in his presence, right? There's this barrier between us and God, this thing called sin. But God, through Jesus and his sacrifice for sins, once and for all, All sin is covered forever, never to be remembered. Thus man may continuously fellowship with God as he originally created him. The sacrifices of the old covenant could not completely remove sin. We'll find about that in chapter 10. They were a shadow of good things. They were to come, that were to come in Christ, and who by one sacrifice of himself completely paid the debt of our sin. And Jesus' high priestly work by means of his death and resurrection fulfills all the Old Testament, all that the Old Testament system could only point to. That once and for all, complete perf- perfection of Jesus, self-sacrifice deals fully and finally with the penalty for man's sin. This is the greatest thing about the new covenant, isn't it? That, your, that God remembers your sins no more. That is an amazing. I mean, we've been talking about better promises, right? He writh, he's written it on our minds and hearts. We we could draw closer to him. We got this greater knowledge. But this one here, where God remembers your sins no more. Every other promise we experience in the new covenant is a function and flows from this promise right here in verse twelve. We don't have access to God if our sins are not forgiven. We cannot draw closer to God if our sins are not forgiven. We can't have a greater knowledge of God if our sins are not forgiven. And he would not write it on our minds and hearts so that we could love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength if our sins were still outstanding. Every promise stems from this one. Imagine, if you will, how significant that is. Let me share a story with you. A newly ordained preacher and his young wife were talking about being more considerate of each other. And the good wife promised that she would stop being so critical of his sleep-inducing sermons. So he, in return, promised to honor her privacy and stop looking through her drawers, her dresser drawers. The preacher was true to his word. He never looked through his wife's dresser drawers. The good wife was never openly critical of her husband's sermons, and their marriage progressed smoothly. After 50 years... The children gave a great party to celebrate the golden anniversary of the preacher and his wife. And many people came to congratulate this happy couple and brought lovely gifts. And that evening, as they're putting away their gifts, the preacher saw that his wife had left one dresser drawer open just slightly. He tried as hard as he could to withstand the temptation, but he finally opened the drawer and he looked inside and there were three eggs And $10,000 in cash. Wow. He was greatly puzzled by this, and he went to question his wife. Oh, she said, well, you remember when we spoke about being more considerate with each other all those years ago? The preacher, feeling profoundly guilty, said, yes. She said, well, I promise to stop criticizing your boring sermons, but every time you gave a sermon that was a real snoozer, I put an egg into that drawer. And the preacher smiled, and he said, well, that's not bad. Fifty years? There's only three eggs in there? What about all that money? She said, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. <laughs> See, the good news is God doesn't keep any marks on how many times you've sinned. or well, if your sins have been forgiven, because Jesus has paid the price for our sin, and our sin is completely forgiven. But that idea of having our sins forgiven and remembering no more, that's the most difficult promise for us to fully embrace, isn't it? That's a hard one for us to really wrap our head around. Why is that? Because, first of all, it requires us to do two very difficult things. One, recognize we do wicked things. And two, believe that God has truly set aside that wickedness and continues treating us as his beloved children. That's hard for us. Any previous sin before salvation that is called to our attention by our conscience needs only to be acknowledged and set aside, because that was already paid for. <coughs> Romans 8, one. there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God does so justly because the price for that sin was paid for by the death of Christ on our behalf, not on our sense of regret, Most of us, if not all of us, have things we've done in the past that we regret before we were saved. Satan loves to bring back those memories, bring back a sense of reproach in regard to ourselves. But when we truly acknowledge Romans A one, there's no reproach before God because those past sins, they were crucified at the cross. Even when sin we sin after salvation, God has made provision for us, not as a means of improving our righteousness as our righteousness is through Christ and Christ alone in his atoning work, but rather as a means of restoring that intimate fellowship and continual access to him that we spoke about earlier as a promise of, of his new covenant. Beloved, that means we can live with a daily sense of cleansing by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that will do wonders for our sense of guilt and sense of inadequacy. And so yet again, beloved, we have this better promise in the new covenant. We have complete forgiveness of our sins, past, present, future, through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number five, last one. We're listening quickly. The new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete. That's what our text tells us. The author's point in verse 13 is simply that when the new covenant takes effect, there's no longer any reason to rely upon the old one. Everything in Christ is better. The age of the law and the Levitical priest who mediated it is over. The age of the son, seated at the right hand of the father of the throne and majesty, is here forever. And just as God said there would be a new covenant that would replace the old, the old covenant... Could not accomplish perfection. Remember when we kept talking about that word perfection? That means completion. It could not accomplish what God wanted to accomplish, which was to restore that relationship back with man and give him continual access to him forever. The old covenant couldn't do that. The new covenant does. In the old, the old covenant could only serve as a schoolmaster, a tutor to point us to our sin and death show us how desperately we need a Savior. The Old Testament priest could only minister in the old covenant, but never the new. Only in a new covenant with a new priest and a new order of priesthood could accomplish the perfection that God intended. So verse 13, we'll talk about this a little more. Does that mean God's moral law is obsolete? No, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is this will no longer be the means by which you have access to God or where your sins are atoned for because it could never accomplish what God wanted it to accomplish. It could only point you to your need for a Savior. You know, what's interesting is that he said that that old system with all those old rituals and all those old sacrifices was obsolete. When the old becomes old, it needs to be replaced with something new. It wasn't very many years after that that Titus came in and completely destroyed Jerusalem, and that system has been gone ever since. Beloved, the New Covenant is written on believers' minds and hearts. The New Covenant brings a closer relationship with God. The New Covenant brings a greater knowledge of God. The New Covenant brings complete forgiveness of sins, and the New Covenant has made the Old Covenant obsolete. What are you going to do with all that wonderful news? How should that affect your life? Let me tell you this. Ask yourself this. Since Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of majesty on high and the mediator of a new covenant, is he the consuming focus of my Christian life? Do I daily seek to know him since I now have this ability to know him so well? Do I daily seek to love him since I have a heart that can do that? Do I daily seek to obey him Since I have a heart and a spirit within me to help me to do that now. Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things around on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Beloved, we are called to live through the truth of these better promises. We are called to have a greater knowledge. We are called to have a closer relationship. We are called to live our lives in a way that others will stop and look and say, why do they live the way that they live? Why do they make the decisions they make? All of that became possible because we have a better high priest who mediates a better covenant with better promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for the truth of your word. Lord, it is just so amazing as we unpack these better promises. What a difference it is from the old covenant to the new. And all of that was accomplished, not by us, Lord, but by you. You're the one who defined the terms of this new covenant, Lord. You were the one who made this new covenant, where your law and your word is written on our hearts and minds, where we can have a closer relationship with you, where we can have greater knowledge of you, where our sins are completely forgiven. Lord, what? And incredible promises those are. Lord, the challenge now is understanding that and then living in a way that reflects that. Because the purpose of the new covenant was so that we could love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of it. I pray we do that. As a body at PPC. I pray every day would be a life that honors and glorifies you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.